Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Nishant Desai, or Nish as he goes by. He's currently the Group Director of Technology and Operations at Zaxis, the media company. He has upwards of 20 years of experience leading technical partnerships, integrations, and ad operations for thousands of brands, platforms, and partners. And on today's show, we unpack the cookie-less world that we're about to start living in. We talk about the death of third-party cookies and what drove it, the current state of alternative solutions in the marketplace, and of which there's kind of two approaches, a browser-based version, which is being largely led by Google, and a universal user ID approach, which many different ad tech companies have their own unique platform. Um, But one of the most notable is Unified ID. So in the conversation today, we talk about each of those options, the pluses and minuses, what we should be thinking about as marketers, and um, is this as scary as many people are making it out to be? Or are their viable solutions on the horizon. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nish Desai. Nish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We've got a lot to cover uh, <laughs> on this notion of cookies and the the demise of them. But before we get going, the topics for today, what was your path to advertising and, and working in and around MarTech and ad tech? 
So I started working at 24-7 Real Media at the time in the technical support group. I started part-time. I was freelancing, uh, doing freelance web design at the time. And my parents didn't feel that that was a real enough job. And so wanted me to get something where I was actually employed by someone else. So I started in tech support uh, as like a part-time gig. I figured I would work for a few months and then go back to freelancing. Almost 15 years later, I'm still at 24-7 merged with Zaxxis. And so I'm still at Zaxxis uh, almost 15 years later. So somewhat of an accidental stumble that, that turned out to be something that I really enjoyed. So Nish, how helpful is it having a computer science degree in this world of ad tech and martech? For what I do, it's definitely helpful. Uh, we work a lot in back-end systems. And so... Um, a lot of the fundamental principles of programming and things along those lines, I, I learned as part of that computer science education. And as we get more and more technical, I feel computer science or computers like digital marketing type backgrounds in terms of university level education is going to be more and more vital as things get more and more technical. Let's talk about the death of third party cookies. Where did this cookie list push begin? So I think if you go back a few years to when GDPR was first introduced in Europe, I think that's when we initially saw, saw the, the first cracks in the cookie foundation that, we, that the industry runs on today. Probably it even started a little before that when Safari started treating third-party cookies differently than the other browsers did. And didn't have the same persistence that they did in the other browsers. Um, so that's really where it started. I think the other things that contributed to where we are today would be a lot of the data breaches that, that have happened, and as well as CCPA being introduced in California. Um, so privacy and transparency of, of data um, has become much more top of mind. And since third-party cookies are one of the key ways that that cross-site tracking and measurement happens um, with somewhat of an easy target to say that, you know, these cookies are, are the cause of, of the privacy issues on the web. Um, so eliminating them is going to make them for a more privacy-friendly and, and in theory, a more transparent advertising ecosystem. And it seems like it, it started there, but it, it's pretty widespread now. I mean, we're moving quickly to a cookie-less world. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So Google made the initial announcement uh, last January, January of 2020, and they announced that they were going to deprecate full support for third-party cookies um, sometime in early 2022. So at this point, we're about 10 months, maybe a year away from the actual date. And so, yeah, it, it's rapidly approaching. When we last spoke, you described two approaches, two solutions that are being worked on. One a browser approach, and then a universal ID approach. Can you describe both of these? I mean, because if we lose the cookie, we kind of lose targeting and personalization in marketing, in the digital form anyway. In a sense, yeah. And one of the, the key things to remember is it's not that all cookies are going away. Um, it's just third-party cookies. So um, when you're on a website, let's say you're on CNN.com or NewYorkTimes.com, when you're on some, some major website and they drop cookies, those are first-party cookies. So it's a domain that you're, that's in the, the URL bar of your browser. 
cookies owned by that domain are, are first party cookies. Cookies that are dropped from other domains. So, you know, it might be the publisher might be working with a DSP or an ad server. So you might see a domain like some DSP or some ad server.com. And those would be third party cookies. And that's what's going to be blocked. So personalization will still be possible through cookies and through similar methods in a first party sense from a individual publisher. Or if you're on an advertiser's website, they'll still be able to, to personalize there. Um, what you won't be able to do is personalize across sites based on pages that you viewed or interactions that you've had on other sites. So it's not completely going away, but there's definitely going to be an impact to how personalization is done today. In terms of the two methods, right, there's two kind of camps. Um, like you said, there's the browser camp, which is being led more or less by Google and their, their proposal of Turtle Dove and also Flock. And these are more where identification of audiences will happen in the browser. And then there are the user ID-based approaches. Uh, Unified ID is the major proposal in this space, though there's a, a few others as well. But these actually rely on logged in data from uh, email addresses or, or other PII that's similar. And this will allow a hashed ID so that personal PII will get hashed and then get shared around that way. So this is somewhat similar to the way that, that third-party cookies function today using a, a slightly different mechanism to maintain that persistence of the ID. Let's kind of unpack each of these a little bit. We'll start with the browser version. You know, you said it's being led by Google. What can you, and you, you described kind of two pieces, Turtle Dove and Flock. Can you kind of give us a sense of what the approach that they're taking looks like? And what is Turtle Dove and Flock for those that don't know? So uh, Turtle Dove is a, Turtle Dove and Flock are both, both proposals that Google is putting forth to the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, which is this, the organization that develops web standards. So companies, uh, various, you know, independent developers, other people can make proposals like this. Google has these two that they've put forth. Uh, there's a couple others from several other ad tech companies. So there's Pigeon and there's Sparrow, uh, there's Swan, there's a few others. They all have bird names. But all of these, these proposals basically push the identification of an audience into the browser. So and, and the main leading proposal now is, is, is Flock, and that's what you should kind of be tuning into now to, to, to be up on the latest and the greatest. And origin trials for Flock are starting now. So there's some real-world testing that's being done here. But Flock stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts. Think of a cohort similar to an audience. And in the, the mechanisms that are described in Flock, you're pushing descriptors of that audience into the browser and then the browser is storing all of your viewing and usage history, interaction history. And then based on those criteria, when an ad request would be surfaced, the browser would say, this user belongs to these 7, 10, you know, 100 different flocks, cohorts uh, that, that are similar to audience. So when those would come through, they would come through the DSP and the bid stream in a similar way to the way that, that audience IDs come through today. So you would more or less target them the same way. Uh, there are some, some analogs between the cohort on, and the audience, but the main difference is, is that all of that identification would happen in browser. When we get over to the unified ID camp, what happens there is that you 
still create a, a common ID using an email address. So you'd go to a website that was uh, signed on to Unified ID. They would get your email address. You would consent to, to sharing. And then they would hash that and share that around. So as part of the ad request, you would now see this hashed ID. And then you would still have somewhat individual uh, ad tech vendors would still maintain and build audiences somewhat in a, in, in a similar manner to the way that they do today, except instead of everyone using their own ID, they would all now tie these to this hash ID that's common for unified ID. Okay. And so in the browser version uh, with Flock and Google uh, leading the charge there, one, the, the uh, I guess before I go there, the, the bird names are kind of funny to me. And the, fa- and the fact that Google, the last version is a, a flock, maybe all of the birds flying together, maybe. I don't know if there was a, a strategy behind how they picked the name, but it's kind of funny uh, as a marketer. If I think about that, is my data, you know, defines who, which cohort I'm in, does it stay on my computer or is it sucked into the Google universe, so to speak? When you think about the Google universe, right, it'll sit in Chrome, which is technically the Google universe, but it's not necessarily being uh, sent up to the cloud and being processed there. So all of that data and processing would happen on device, whether it's in your browser or if you extend this to in-app scenarios, it would happen, you know, remain on your mobile phone. Okay. So in my browser then is sending the signal to advertisers that, I'm a middle-aged white guy who likes marketing <laughs> and, and is a part of that cohort of middle-aged white guys who like marketing. Absolutely. And so, you know, it might be named a little differently, right? So yeah, I'm sure. So it be male <laughs> advertising enthusiast. But yeah, so that would get surfaced up in the request. And there's a schema about how, how some of the, the, this data is passed back and forth. And so that would, yeah, so, so, you know, you'd get a set of those that would say, you know, you're a advertising enthusiast, you might also be, you know, a sports enthusiast, you might like cooking or movies or music, right? It'll, it would surface different cohorts that you belong to. That makes sense. I mean, thanks for going along with my really bad analogy, but <laughs> thank you. It helps just to, just to understand how it's all working. And so if we just start, you know, go a little bit further with Flock, what are some of the roadblocks to a browser-based or Flock-based solution? One of the key things to remember is so that while it is at the, the W3C, so it's cross-browser group, the other browsers haven't signed on to support this in the same way that, that Chrome and Google have. In theory, you could see a situation where Flock and these, these browser-based solutions are only implemented in Chrome, which would leave Safari and Firefox and you know, Opera and any of those other independent browsers out there would not participate in this. So while Chrome is the largest, uh, has the largest market share for the browsers, it's only, you know, like 60%. So, you know, you're still losing, you know, about a third to to uh, half of the overall population. That's definitely a, a, a stopper, if you will, to, to some degree. Anything else from a roadblock standpoint? Yeah. So while Google is building the, the framework and, and is building the foundation into the browser, also then need to have the other ad tech and martech vendors uh, sign on to this as well. So they're the ones that have to basically push these these cohort descriptors down into browsers. They need to to sign on to to target in this way. So 
even if the, you can surface it in the browser and send it across in the ad request, someone has to be listening for it and be cooperating in the ecosystem. So, you know, Google does have a rather large tech stack as well. So, you know, they could support it in their DSP. You might not have universal adoption in the other DSPs. Based on the, the conversations that are happening, that, that's unlikely, but things like that could happen. So if we switch to the other side, which is really kind of driven by the ad tech uh, and MarTech industry, if you will, the, the unified ID is one example of that with this universal user ID approach. Are there any obstacles to them? It sounds like the biggest one is going to be scale as well. So getting those lists of email addresses. So if you're, you know, if you think of, of being like a pharma advertiser, you may not have a large first party data set. You might not have a list of emails um, just because you don't interact with your, your users in that same way, right? You don't have a need to collect email addresses. And if you're in pharma, you may not want to because of you know, HIPAA compliance and other things along those lines. So if you don't have a large first party data set, you'll have to build one or you may have to buy one. So that's going to be an issue from the advertiser standpoint. From the publisher standpoint, you have to get people to give you their email address. So getting a bunch of users to, to do that is, is definitely going to be a hurdle. Today, we see that you know it's like 20, 25% maybe of users who authenticate when they're given the, the option. So, so that, that, that's definitely going to be the biggest hurdle to get unified ID adoption. It sounds like you, to your point, you have to be authenticated to have this universal ID follow you around, so to speak. Yeah. And you have to authenticate in multiple places. So it's not like you authenticate once and then you can pass that around. You'll have to authenticate on every site that you visit in order for, you know, the net of ID unification, right? That, that graph of graphs to, to kind of work. No offense, Niche, but it, it sounds like a mess, like, like a little bit of a mess. You know, you got the, the, the browser wars, if you will, and then you got or the, the browser camp and maybe it's a war against browser camp versus universal ID, but they're both limited in some respects. And then we haven't really even talked about mobile yet. I've just been envisioning my computer, my laptop and running Chrome. So I'm, I'm in the browser camp, but then as soon as I switch to my mobile device and I might you know, haven't switched my browser to the default. Now I'm in the Safari land on my iOS device. And that seems like a gap even within the browser. Like Google could follow me on the desktop, but they couldn't follow me on my mobile device at that point. And saying it's a, it's a mess is definitely in the right sentiment. So I wouldn't say that, that you know, there's, a, there's a war going on. They're definitely competing ideologies. I don't think what will... It's not that one will win out over the other. I think what we'll end up seeing is an ecosystem where you have somewhat of, of an overlap between the two, right? So you may have some audiences that you target through a unified ID mechanism. You may have some that are targeted through a flock-like mechanism. And you may end up having some campaigns that are targeted to some mix of the two. And I think when these actually hit market is when you'll see which one's going to actually win out in the end, right? Just because whichever one, it's like a VHS Betamax, right? Like whichever one gets the most traction, gets the most adoption quickest is probably what's going to build out, which is probably going to be what's going to last the longest. Obviously, there'll, there'll probably be iterations. Once these things get deployed, we'll find faults in them and aim to fix them. So it'll probably be a little shaky for 
you know, maybe the next year or so after these methods are adopted. But I think the messiness is when we see some of the best things happen, right? Like when we, when the industry went through the hit in the recession in 2008 and 2009, um, some of the big ad tech players that we think of today emerged out of that space, right? So I think the messiness is going to breed innovation. So as much as it's painful when things change and having to accommodate for it, I think we're looking at a period in the industry when a lot of new and exciting things are going to start to happen. That makes sense. And you address my next question, which is, which do you think will survive or, you know, which one maybe scales better? To some degree, we don't know yet, it sounds like, but maybe, maybe we do. Let me just ask the questions. Which one scales better? <laughs> I think out of the box, you can say that Flock will, will scale better just because it doesn't have that PII hurdle that the unified ID camp has. Google can also push this out in a browser update. So as opposed to having to have individual publishers and advertisers update their sites, do things along those lines, it can be pushed out in a more rapid fashion. And then assuming that, you know, the other ad tech vendors in the space are all ready to start. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Listening to those signals and start, start uh, pushing down those data segments. You know, I think Flock has the potential to scale the quickest. I think the the, the Unified ID Camp is, has been doing beta trials as well. So they're they're out there, you know, getting ready for this as well. So it's not that one is really farther ahead than the other. I think Google and their scale might might be able to push out a little quicker. But I think you're going to see both of them emerge in the market somewhat around the same time, probably in the next, in the later half of this year. So we'll have three somewhat competing, right? We'll have the cookies that we have today. And then you'll probably have some flock-based solutions and you'll have some unified ID-based solutions that will be able to kind of pit against each other and see which ones perform the best. And then, you know, as an industry, when the cookies go, uh, when the cookies get deprecated, we'll, we'll be able to see, have a better sense of, of which one is going to last. Well, so which one do you think is better for marketing? Is It seems like if browser might have some scale benefits that maybe the user ID is better for marketers just in terms of like personalization and targeting the dim dimensions in which we might have available to us? Yeah, especially if you're a larger marketer. So if you have uh, a bunch of those email addresses, it's going to be much easier to port those audiences around. It's going to, from a marketer standpoint, when you're looking at the flock scenario, you're somewhat giving up control of exactly how 
that audience is is controlled and like owned. And so from like a marketer standpoint, I think, especially if you're larger, you're going to be in the unified ID camp. I think if you're a publisher, you're probably going to be more in the flock camp just because it gives you more control over some of those auction dynamics and how some of that data gets passed along. It also makes your own first party data set seem a little more enticing because you do have a level of personalization that you may not have in the flock alone scenario. Last question along these lines of which is better for, which is better for users? If the unified ID camp really is built out in the way that, that the, uh, the proposal is, right, where you get full control over what data you have, what data is being stored, you can change it, you can add new data. I think from a user standpoint, that's going to be the most appealing just because you'll see what data is there and you can opt in, out, opt out. And if you, in theory, you'll be able to do it once and it'll apply everywhere. So I think that that's really enticing from a user privacy perspective. I think there's some questions about Flock and its compliance. So like I said earlier, origin trials, origin tests are starting, uh, started last week and are ongoing now. Um, they're not happening in Europe because there are some GDPR compliance issues. So there's some, some issues along those lines as well. This is a huge jump ball. Uh, opportunity for the entire industry. We're here in March Madness. I have to use a basketball analogy. (laughs) Who do you see winning and losing? I mean, with limited cookies, it seems like the platforms, i.e. the Googles, Facebooks, Amazons, et cetera, of the world will likely assimilate some additional control that they didn't already have. But maybe I'm thinking about that the wrong way. No, definitely. The big winners are going to be, yeah, the platforms that are also publishers. So the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks, Um, you'll also probably see some new alliances of sorts uh, spring up where news publishers may band together to, you know, somewhat share an audience, uh, share a set of logins, verticals might band together a little bit, companies that have a lot of registration data. So if you think about travel or you know, e-commerce where you're getting, where users are required to log in to access other parts of your services, right? Those people have these great data stores that that they've already been building for years. So they're going to be ahead of the game. And yeah, obviously, right? Like Google, I think is probably going to be one of the biggest winners, right? They not only control a large browser, they they also have an operating system as well. There may be, Apple might be be in that same space because they're in a, a similar ecosystem level scenario the the big companies today are going to be the biggest winners is apple in this right now Uh, are they uh, just curious because you haven't talked about them so apple is participating in the group but they haven't like they haven't had their own proposal so so yeah they're, they're they're participating but they're not actively you know it's not like a joint contribution between uh the browsers that's being put out one more question for you, because as a podcaster, we haven't talked about this on the on the podcast in an open public environment before, but I have heard rumors um, or rumblings, maybe even a better term, <laughs> of big marketers. So think like the largest consumer companies in the world building their own data troves on households, you know, and individual IP addresses, email addresses, what you know, everything you can think of. Do you think that the largest marketers will try to build their own kind of like first party solutions or 
to try to leapfrog the tech stack mess or or you think it'll it'll wash out in the end and we'll still be using yeah it's definitely true that that you know especially like cpg brands have these massive data stores that they've been building you know in some cases have been building since like the direct mail days so you know have 50 60 years of data that they've been building and have have really realized like early on that that data was a really valuable asset and so have been investing in yeah first party data assets in some cases have been building out their own data warehouses things along those lines do i think they're going to build their own like id layer or you know dsp type situation probably not you may see them build data solutions that they may license or partner with retailers or other people along those lines to to utilize but yeah, definitely, since they've been doing this for so long, are poised to do some very interesting things with the the data assets that they have. Would they become tech providers? Maybe not. I think what you'll likely to see is something along the lines of, similar to how Walmart and Trade Desk partnered to bring the Walmart audiences to market, um, you may see things along those lines where uh, the CPG or these big marketers partner with DSP or some other tech platform to surface some of those audiences for use in in other places. And is the the rumbles I'm hearing are from the CPG type companies. So we'll see. We'll see what comes. But yeah, the partnership approach makes a lot more sense. It seemed like a real stretch. I mean, even, even if the data is perfect, it seemed like a big stretch to go all the way themselves. Yeah. And I think it's just a little it's a little far out of their wheelhouse, right? Like the data science type stuff that they've invested in makes sense because they have so much of it and, and, and you know, you need some of those systems in-house. I don't know if it makes sense for them to invest in like ad tech that much, even though, you know, it is kind of core to what they do, but I don't, I think it's far enough away from their core, core business that it's not something that they would dive into alone. If I'm a marketer, like most of the folks listening to us have this conversation, what should I be thinking about? What should I be doing, if you will? So we have, don't panic. That's probably the the best (laughs) thing to to start with. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's not the end of the world. We've been in positions like this before and we've always made it through. So, you know, the industry is not collapsing. The sky is not falling. We'll make it through. We have probably about a year until this actually goes into effect. So we have plenty of time to get ready. What we've been advocating for heavily is uh, to take this time to test and learn, figure out where your media spend is currently happening, how dependent you are on third-party audiences, which are going to be impacted the most, figure out what solutions exist in the market today that are cookie-less that would allow you to target users in a similar way. Uh, Look at things like context, look at things like private marketplace deals where you might be using a publisher's data to to activate an audience. All of that will still be around even after third-party cookies go away. So uh, lean into those. Like I said earlier, Safari and Firefox have been cookie-less more or less for at least the, the past year. Um, So look at those channels and see how your investment is performing, see what strategies are working there, try those out in Chrome, see if those will work 
uh, similarly and, and as effectively in a cookied environment as they do in the cookie list. See if that's a, that's a feasible option to, to move into. And just like lean into these conversations that are happening at the W3C. Unified ID just got taken over by prebid.org, which is an independent organization as well. So, you know, learn as much as you can. Most of these are, are relatively open forums. So you can ask questions, you can raise issues, things along those lines. So, you know, get involved, get educated and, and figure out how you you can adapt, right? There's a lot of options out there that are non-cookie less that, that you may be ignoring because uh, you felt that audiences that you're using today were, were safe. So take a look at what's out there. Smart advice. One of the things we like to do uh, is also turn the tables around, I guess, and 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 see the other side of you, <laughs> uh, the personal side of you, uh, you know, away from the tech and the and the cookies, uh, so to speak. Although maybe you like real cookies in real life, I don't know. One of my favorite questions to ask is: Is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I wouldn't say it's an ex- uh, one particular experience. I would definitely say it's like a series of experiences, and most of them surround my my family, like my immediate family, and in particular my my paternal grandmother, who uh, was somewhat my babysitter, my partner in crime when I was from when I was very young, and her she was just like an inspiration overall, right? So she, my dad is one of five boys. Um, she lost one of her children uh, when he was very young. So uh, my dad uh, had three brothers growing up for, for the majority of his life. And she was just like a very, I describe her as like a baller lady, right? She, she <laughs> never saw an obstacle that she like couldn't overcome. And so she was like probably one of my biggest inspirations. That, that's been kind of one of my, my greatest influences in life. I love the story about your grandmother because I also I had a kind of baller grandmother myself. Not to compare grandmother to grandmother, <laughs> but I know exactly what you're talking about. What advice would you have or give your younger self if you were starting starting this career all over again? I mean, just in general, I would say buy more Bitcoin when I had the opportunity, right? Like if I could go back in time, that would be my number one piece of advice to myself and anyone else around. But my younger self in the industry... I would say, so I started in tech support, which was a somewhat isolated role. So we, uh, at 24-7, it was a, we operated a publisher ad server. And early, you know, for the first year or so of my career, I was just kind of like uh, head down doing, doing the job that, that you know, kind of came at me, right? Like didn't ask a lot of questions, didn't try to learn a lot about the industry or the company as a whole. And definitely, I would say that my career kind of took off as I started getting exposed to these other sectors of the business. So we also ran an ad network, and then we ran a group called B3, which eventually formed into Zaxxis. So if I could do it over again, I would definitely tell myself to get more involved more quickly, right? Uh, Ask more questions, um, see what else was going on. Publisher ad serving isn't the most exciting thing in the world. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I started and programmatic was brand new, um, it was super exciting. And when we, you know, at B3, it was a, a very startup type atmosphere. And so we would like work late and there was like a great sense of com- camaraderie. And I just learned a ton about, you know, not just the industry, but about myself, about people, you know, just come out. Of, had I come out of my shell earlier, I feel like I could have seen a whole lot more in that first year. 
a kind of a silly question. Has there been an impactful purchase for you of say a hundred dollars or less in the last six to 12 months? I bought at the start of the pandemic, I bought a new bike and when winter hit, that was definitely more than a hundred dollars. But so when, when winter hit, I bought an indoor flywheel trainer so I could bike indoors and I really, really come to love this thing. It's super awesome. It's easy to use. Like the bike just snaps in and it's been, uh, so I've like, I signed up for an app that lets you do like trail courses through, um, like on your TV. So it's kind of like a Peloton, but you know, it's just with like a regular bike and a flywheel trainer. So that's been my favorite purchase under a hundred bucks in the, in the past year. You're hacking your your bike <laughs> and you're you're hacking the Peloton for your own your own benefit. I like it. I like it. Interesting. Well, two more marketing kind of questions for you. Most people I find that are on the show are kind of observant or you know engaged in the world in some form or fashion. I'm curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of. I've been, I'm like an AI chunky, right? So I've been heavily invested in Google as like an AI company and also like Tesla. I have this dream of, you know, a fully automated house and car so that like I never have to think about those little things, right? Like kind of like the Jetsons. So yeah, so Tesla and, and Google are definitely companies that I follow in like the AI space. I'm also like a big renewable energy junkie. So I've been looking at no, like no company specifically, but I've been really, I've been doing a lot of research on like geothermal and wind power, things along those lines that I think are going to be really big in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. I think we've heard a lot about like solar, right? I think some of those other um, alternatives are really going to jump off in the next few years. It's a hot topic for sure. And, and with, even more and more electric vehicles coming on the market, it's going to probably even become more interesting as people try to figure out how can I, how can I contribute to creating energy, not just use it? Well, last question for you. What, what do you feel like is the largest opportunity your threat marketers face today? And it might be cookies. I don't know. I, we'll see what you say. It's definitely cookies are one of them, right? And then, you know, we didn't really talk about stuff in, in mobile a ton, but there's some some stuff happening in IDs there as well. I would say like the changing landscape of identity as a whole is going to, I don't know if I'd say it's a it's a threat, but it's definitely the biggest seismic shift that we've seen in the industry probably since it be- began, right? I think GDPR and CCPA were initial flags that change was coming and we needed to shift how we managed identity. And definitely, right, like this is this is going to be this is going to be the thing that, that we're talking about for the next five or 10 years as we get into things that use biometrics or kinematics, other things along those lines to identify a person, right? Like now we're talking about fingerprints and faces and, and the way you walk and the intonations of your voice that are being used to build an identity profile. I think, you know, questions about Identity is not just about the cookies. Uh, the cookies are not going to be like the be all end all of this conversation. So I think looking at how we manage that is, is going to be the biggest. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the biggest threat and the biggest opportunity to, to if we can do it properly. I think there's a ton of potential. You bring up a great point. Our entire conversation has been about how marketers can adjust right to the changing landscape and 
the existential threat or, or pressure out in the marketplace is what, what do consumers and regulators want as well? You know, cause I doubt many people are going to go run out and pay for their Facebook subscription, you know, like, like <laughs> it's free. I'm just used to using it. I'm not paying for this thing. So, you know, with that comes cost, right? And finding the right balance probably is one of the trickiest things to be monitoring and thinking about right now in terms of identity and privacy and, and the trade-offs that we're making and that consumers make, whether they know them, whether you know, they're conscious about it or unconscious about it, they're making them. So it's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting time to be a marketer and, and be a marketer in technology. Yep, 100%. Thank you, Nish, for coming on the show. It's been enlightening. It's a topic I didn't know much about, but I'm hoping that I learned something and I'm hoping that listeners today took a lot of notes on this episode. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a, a ton of fun. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.